the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, be on the lookout. Hackers have been stealing blank stares, making them out to Russian accounts, and draining emotional account holders of all poignancy. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Mill Clerk, Cokie Daniel. Hey, we have a podcast roundtable this time, hosted by Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sherrad. David is, among other things here at Bain, the editor of the annual Year's Best Military and Adventure SF. This year's edition is Volume 3. Dave takes the job seriously and reads and reads literally everything online and in print. That's a paying market, and he skims off the cream and brings it to you in these anthologies he edits for us every year. He's gathered together several of the writers of the stories in this year's volume for a discussion of those stories with anthology authors Casey Ezel, Eric Del Carlo, Jay Werkheiser, Robert Dawson, and Michael Ezel. They'll be discussing their stories as well as thoughts on the writing of story-driven military and adventure science fiction Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leaden Universe, novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news. Yes, indeed, July is almost here, and Independence Weekend portends. We have a very cool new July debut hardcover to tell you about, and that is The Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett. This is a new alternate history that is set in the Ring of Fire universe. That is the one that's created by Eric Flint in such novels as 1632. But this one takes place in the more distant past. Here's the idea. A modern-day cruise liner gets thrown back in time to the Egyptian Mediterranean after the Hellenization of Egypt. Twice before, mysterious cosmic catastrophes have sent portions of the Earth across space and back in time, first with the Grantville disaster in West Virginia to Central Europe, and then again with Maximum Security Prison in Southern Illinois. Now the planet is struck with yet another such cataclysm whose indirect impact falls upon the Queen of the Sea. This is a cruise ship in the Caribbean. When the convulsions subside, the crew and passengers of the ship discover that they have arrived in a new and frightening world. They are in the Mediterranean, not the Caribbean, and still worse, they discover the disaster has set them more than 2,000 years back in time. Following the advice of an historian among the passengers, Mary Easley, they sail to Egypt, or at least where they hope Egypt will be. Sure enough, Egypt is there, ruled over by Ptolemy, the founder of the Ptolemaic dynasty and one of Alexander the Great's chief generals. Alexander the Great, it turns out, died just two years ago. The Western world has just entered what would become known as the Hellenistic period during which time Greek civilization would spread around the Mediterranean and beyond. But the first 50 years of the Hellenistic period was the age of Diadochi, the time of the successors, when Alexander's empire would collapse into chaos. This is the new world in which the Queen of the Seas finds itself. The Alexander Inheritance, a new alternate history from Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett, is available in July at booksellers everywhere. Hi, everybody. It's David F. Shirod sitting here in here for Tony Daniel on the Bain Free Radio Hour. I always enjoy talking to uh, folks about short stories and novels on, uh, on the podcast, but I'm especially excited today because I'm here not only as an interviewer and podcast host, but also as the editor of the book we are talking about, and that is The Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction, Volume 3. Uh, yes, it has been three years that we've been doing these, and I'm so excited to talk to some of the contributors to this year's volume. Um, and let's just go ahead and introduce them now. Uh, we have with us Eric Del Carlo. His short fiction has appeared in Asimov's Analog, Strange Horizons, and many other places. He wrote the war-torn novels with Robert Asprin and co-authored the novel The Golden Gate is Empty with his father, Victor Del Car Carlo. 
His latest book is The Vampire Years, which is coming out uh, fall of this year from Elder Signs Press. Eric, uh, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I don't mind getting up this early for something like this. Well, we appreciate it. Yeah, you're out on you're a couple of you are out on the West Coast, so we appreciate you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you guys uh, rising and shining early for us. We've also got uh, Jay Werkheiser here. He teaches chemistry and physics to high school students, where he often finds inspirations for stories in classroom discussions. Not surprisingly, his stories often deal with alien biochemistry, weird physics, and their effects on the people who interact with them. Many of his stories have appeared in Analog, with others scattered among several other science fiction magazines and anthologies. Uh, Jay, thank you for uh, calling into the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, and also on the podcast today, we have Robert Dawson. He teaches mathematics at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia. When not teaching, doing research, or writing, he enjoys cycling, hiking, and fencing. That sounds pretty cool. He has had over 50 stories and poems published. Uh, he is alumnus of the Sage Hill and Viable Paradise writing workshops and a member of SF Canada and the SFWA. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for uh, being on today. Oh, it's a pleasure. We also have uh, Casey Izell back on the podcast. We talked with her about this short story, but it was uh, so good. I thought we talked to her about it again. Uh, her story appeared in uh, <laughs> John Ringo and Gary Poole's um, Black Tide Rising anthology. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, she is an active duty uh, UA USAF helicopter pilot. Uh, when not beating the air into submission, she writes military science fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. She lives with her husband, two daughters, and an ever-growing number of cats. Casey, thanks for coming back on and talking about your story again. Well, thanks for having me back again. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Absolutely. And we ha also have Michael Izell here, and believe it or not, uh, no relation, uh, but I would like to say that uh, Bane's Year's Best is the only Year's Best, I believe, that offers not one but two Izells in the table of contents. So if that's not a selling point... <laughs> All right. Michael is a uh, former Marine Corps canine handler. Uh, he is a project coordinator for an Emmy-winning makeup effects shop in Southern California, so he also got up early. Uh, his fiction has also appeared, uh, has appeared in the anthology Fantasy for Good and On Spec Magazine. And you can find him on Twitter at SinisterEZ or at SinisterWriter.com, which is his sorely neglected blog. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, Michael, uh, I know you've got to go because you, uh, we talked about you, uh, your, <clears throat> um, your day job. Uh, you guys have some tight deadlines, so we're going to go ahead and start with you so that you can get back to the, uh, the paying gig. Um, I really liked your... Yeah, back to the grind. Uh, I really, of course, liked everyone's story in the anthology, but um, when I read yours, The Good Food, it was one of those that I was like, instantly, uh, this is going in. Um, and uh, well, yeah, and uh, so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about it. We mentioned in your uh, bio that you were a former Marine Corps canine handler, and I think that uh, inspired this story or played into this story in some way. Um, could you just talk about how the story came about and how you drew on that background and how it fits into the to, to, into the good food? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I was uh, I was an explosive detection canine handler, but you know the history of canine handlers go all the way back to like patrol dogs, and that's basically what I want to do is ride a guy out on a long range patrol with just a dog to keep him company. And uh, I thought it was pretty pretty typical that uh, bureaucrats have a terraforming project that's giving them a headache. So uh, Instead of spending the money on a mission with scientists to go out there, they send a, a soldier who's already out in the area uh, who's severely underqualified to do these things, but it's a money saver. So, of course, they send him out there anyway. <laughs> right, and he is, uh, he's got his dog. Um, so uh, Jensen is the Marine, and his uh, dog is Roy. And Roy is not just a um, – he's not a dog like we know him. Is he – he's – uplifted in some way right he can communicate how did that work in the story they they have a little communication device you know in their embedded in their throat that helps them speak to their handler since they're often on uh very very long-range missions alone um and that uh the dog himself belgian the belgian malinois breed is based on the dogs we used to use they're they're really up and coming in police work and in military work and i actually 
worked with a handler as a civilian police officer who had a dog named Roy who was just a beast. He was gigantic compared to other dogs. So that, that really inspired the Roy character as well. Yeah, and then there's also, he does have one other sort of companion, right, um, which is uh, Moira, the ship's AI. And um, I really love, she's very, um, she's kind of a smartass, I guess, in a way, right? Um, I just wondered how that came about. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's basically you know, based on the original programmer for these missions who's, you know, described as a woman who would go out on a date with you and then give you a hearty handshake and insist on paying for her half the dinner. Uh, so she's, she's very pragmatic, you know, she's just, uh, she sees these people out on the mission as another set of tools as, you know, some scientists all, all, not always, but sometimes, you know, you have a tendency to lose that kind of human issue. You see all the people working on your project as a tool. Um, and so that's how she's, you know, the AI sees Jensen as a tool that's supposed to be doing a mission. So when he starts to go off a little bit, she starts to take the task over it. Yeah, I really like the interplay between all three of them. Um, <coughs> only one of which is really human, I guess. It's kind of a, kind of an interesting story to uh, just have one human character, but it really works. Um, so you mentioned the mention, mission a little bit, but um, I don't. Yours is a type of story you can't talk about too much, or it'll give things away. But um, and I I would hate to do that. But um, talk about why is uh, why was Jensen's four seven Alpha is this planet? Um, why is he sent down there? What's going on? Well, they you know it's in a time where they have these extreme long range patrols and uh, they have a lot of terraforming projects up and running, and one of them seems to have an issue that they can't really take care of with satellites. Uh, they see the problem, but they can't really define what it is. Um, so they decide, well, since this grunt's already out there on patrol, we'll just tell him to land and check it out. Yeah, I think we can probably, if, unless you don't want to, I think we can probably tell them what the problem is if you want. I mean, that, that's not giving away too much, I don't think. Uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, they can see, uh, they've, they've been growing on the plant that are friendly to that type of the light environment that they have. And they see that there's a really straight line of demarcation across the plant life where it's beginning to either die out or it's been eaten uh, because, you know, you don't have a lot of straight lines in nature. So as soon as they see that, they, they know there's a problem down there. Yeah, and um, maybe one last thing. This sort of reminded me, and I mean this as um, the bi biggest compliment I can, this reminded me of something they might have done on the Outer Limits or maybe Twilight Zone. Um, they wouldn't have had the budget on either of those shows, probably. But um, I just, I just, I just wondered, did that sort of thing enter your head? That kind of, um, I don't know, something about the lonely, the lonely guy. Yeah, right. I, I love those old episodes. I love things like, uh, you know, I Am Legend. Obviously, there, there are not people he interacts with, but creatures he interacts with. that used to be people, mm -hmm. but still. Uh, post-apocalypse has always been a, a, a big favorite of mine. Um, people stranded somewhere, the idea of what humans can overcome or uh, what, you know, beats us down psychologically when we're alone. Uh, so that's, uh, I, I think I kind of find that a lot in my writing. I kind of go back to that. I have more than one thing where it's a, kind of a post-apocalypse and there's one main protagonist trying to make something happen, um, you know, against all odds, as they say. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the things that, in addition to the the <clears throat> interesting world building and the the plot, I think that was one of the things that drew me to it. Because I also like that sort of um, last man on Earth feel, although he's not on Earth, obviously. Um, well, uh, like I said, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's such a great uh, little. It's the kind of story you don't want to talk too much about. I'll just leave it at that. Um, for risk of spoiling it, um, but I do want to. I thought we we haven't we've done these podcasts twice now, obviously, and we haven't done this. But I thought I would do it this year, and that's kind of maybe give a shout out to where the story originally uh, was published, and maybe uh, how did it come to find its way in that anthology? I know it was an anthology. Um, uh, it was. It was uh, Patrice Fitzgerald put out an anthology called Beyond the Stars at Galaxy's Edge. Um, <laughs> And I, I submitted to her, um, not really sure if it was what she was looking for, because she was looking for a lot of uh, 
more race opera type stuff. Uh, but I sent it out. I queried her anyway. And, uh, you know, it was a story that takes place in deep space. And uh, she agreed to read it, you know, and uh, I heard back from her fairly quickly. And she said, yeah, I think it's great. I think uh, it fits. You know, it's in deep space. It's what we're doing. So uh, I made it into the anthology. I was very happy about that. Okay, yeah. Well, and those, that's, we should say, is a, um, it's like an ongoing series, and they kind of have a slightly different theme each time. And I've really enjoyed, uh, something I discovered when I was, you know, reading for years best and looking for stories. And I've really enjoyed all of those anthologies. And, um, you know, quite a few stories from there were in my, in my maybe pile, put it that way. So, um, anyways. Well, uh, Michael, I know you've got to get back to the day job, so we will say, uh, adieu and let you do that. But really appreciate you, uh, being on here today. It was right. great to meet all you guys. Um, and, yeah. uh, I, I hope this has great success. Bye bye. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. Let's, uh, turn to our other Izell. Uh, that's, uh, Casey Izell. Um, she, yes, no, again, no relation, but, um, like I said, we talked about her story, not in vain in the past on the podcast. If you caught our interview with, um, John Ringo and Gary Poole and some of the contributors, uh, to the anthology, um, what's it called? Black Tide Rising. Um, but I really liked the story, so I wanted to talk to her again. Um, so this is, if you remember, if you did hear, this is the, uh, Cheerleaders fighting zombies, uh, story. So, um, yeah. So Casey, um, you got, you, this is a, uh, I don't want to say autobiographical because I don't know that you've ever fought zombies, but it, you drew on your own background a, a little bit for this one. Um, uh, maybe talk about that if you would. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, the main character of, uh, Nia Swanson in, uh, the story, not in vain, is a uh, retired Air Force helicopter pilot who has a second career as a high school cheerleading coach. Um, I uh, am not a retired Air Force helicopter pilot, although I will be hopefully in a couple of years. But uh, um, And I'm also not a cheerleading coach, but I am a cheerleading mom. And um, I, uh, I gathered a lot of inspiration for both the cheerleader characters in my story and the dynamics between the, the, the cheerleaders on their team uh, with each other and then uh, their interactions with their coach from watching my uh, my two cheerleaders' daughters interact with their teammates and their coaches and, and just some of the really, uh, really impressive things that these little kids do, you know, and, and can accomplish uh, together um, within the sport of cheerleading. So, <laughs> so that's where that came from. Yeah, and then, of course um... – this is set in John Ringo's um, Black Tide Rising um, world that he created for his uh, series of four books, and I think there might be some more. Uh, there's talk of that. I don't know. You have to ask him, but um, him or Tony Weiskopf. But um, maybe if you want to set that, I mean, I, I know some of our listeners will be familiar with it, but some probably won't be. Could you set that up for us? Like what what's going on in Not in Vain? And yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, so John's universe, which is a phenomenal, um, uh, you're right. It's a, uh, right now a four book series. Um, and, um, it's John's take on a, a zombie apocalypse. So in this particular universe, the, uh, the, the zombie apocalypse is not a, it doesn't have a supernatural basis. It's essentially a, um, terrorist bioweapon gone extremely, extremely bad. And, um, mm-hmm. The, the zombies, as it were, are really just infected humans who've had their f- higher brain function shut down by this created bioweapon. Um, so uh, the way that John set it up, the, the virus ends up traveling across the United States following some major highways, one of which runs right through Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where I was living at the time that I wrote the story um, and is, is where the story, this, the story begins, my story begins. Um, so uh, I have uh, the, uh, the cheerleading team coming back from a competition in Colorado Springs, which is a relatively big city. Um, so they would have obviously been exposed to a lot of the people. And as this, this bioweapon virus is making its way through the population, they would have been exposed to that. So um, one of the things that I wanted to explore in the story is, you know, sort of the, the way in which these kids, and they are kids, deal with some, you know, some pretty adult responsibilities of taking care of each other and, and making, you know, 
decisions that could and do in the in the case of this story, you know, end up being life and death life and death style decisions. So. Yeah, one thing I've, I've seen, um, <coughs> excuse me, John uh, talk about this at Dragon Con on some panels and stuff. And one of the things he said is he um, hated uh, in zombie movies, although you could probably make this about a lot of horror films, is that like it seems like the monsters always in- attack very incompetent people, uh, <laughs> you know. And that if you had someone with some military training or police training or even civilians who, you know, um, were familiar with, uh, handguns or guns, you know, uh, that this, this would not be as big a problem as it is in the movies. And so that's one thing I thought was interesting is, of course, uh, Mia has, uh, she's from a military background, but these cheerleaders aren't, and yet they are still very competent. They don't, um, they don't turn into the the scream queen hiding in the corner, uh, you know, young girls. So, yeah, um, I don't know where did where did this come from? This just uh, that's just such an interesting juxtaposition as cheerleaders and zombies, um, and you handled it in an interesting way, I think. So, well, well, thank you for the for the compliment. Yeah, when, sure. a lot of it, like I said, was was from you know observing my so my oldest daughter started cheering when she was six years old, and um, I watched her along with her teammates be taught lessons such as when you're doing these, um, you know, these, these stunts that competitive cheerleaders do where they lift one another up in the air, the person who goes up in the air is called the flyer. And one of the lessons that they learned is that the flyer doesn't hit the ground. If the stunt is going to come down, the bases of which my daughter is one, their job is to do whatever it takes to get under the flyer and bases get hurt a lot, but the flyer doesn't, you know, the the girl who's up in the air, six, eight, ten feet, sometimes higher for mm. certain tosses, doesn't get badly injured, if that makes sense. Mm. So this idea of, of being able to sacrifice yourself, you know, sacrifice a little, a smaller injury on yourself for the benefit of your teammate, um, that's something that, and, and, you know, again, I'm watching little kids do this, right? So it, it occurs to me that it, when someone comes up, is grows up with, with this kind of, of um, ethos. And that's obviously, you know, that's not limited to just cheerleading as a sport. I think most sports actually kind of teach that sort of, of mindset. Um, but that's the kind of thing that, that you're talking about is going to lead you to be able to have the sort of competencies that I think are going to be necessary if you're going to survive a zombie apocalypse. Cause even if you're not super familiar with firearms, I mean, honestly, most firearms are relatively simple mechanisms. It doesn't take long to learn how to shoot a gun. What takes a long time is to learn how to employ the weapon um, in a way that is uh, deadly to your target and not deadly to you and to your teammates, if that makes sense. So having that sort of awareness, situational awareness that is fostered by youth sports, <laughs> um, it, it, it honestly seemed to me to be a natural fit. That's always so interesting. I always, I always love hearing that kind of thing where something that to me seems like, wow, that's such a, uh, a unique, weird thing to think of to the author is like, you know, I think that's to me what makes stories interesting is different perspectives and, and hearing something like to you, it's like, well, that was, that's obvious. Like, why would you not do that? You know, so I, I always like to hear that kind of thing. So, um, well, we talked about where this one came from. Um, uh, which is the the John Ringo anthology, so which everyone should go out and buy um, because it's full of great stories, um, and you know puts money in Bane and John's in your pocket. So um, I will encourage that. But you should also buy Year's Best Military Adventure in Science Fiction, uh, uh, Military Adventure Science Fiction Volume Three. Uh, and Casey, I know you've got uh, not a day job, but you've got another errand you need to run. Um, kind of life imitating art like you're you're going to be in a in a car with a bunch of kids taking them to not from a cheerleading competition but uh to an amusement park so we will let you go and hope that you don't encounter any zombies on the road okay, yeah me thank too you. <laughs> thanks so much you guys have a great day um robert i wanted to talk to you now about your story uh called the art of failure um and this one is uh, sort of reminding me, I mentioned uh, with Michael that it reminded me in the best way of sort of maybe a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits episode. This in a lot of ways reminded me, again, in the best way possible of sort of a original series Star Trek where you've got a cool 
um, alien first contact uh, conundrum that they solve using their wits, but there's also a lot of action in it too. Um, and I guess if you could just set it up. So our main character is a xenolinguist, which I thought was very interesting. And um, he's on board a merchant vessel that comes in contact with some aliens and uh, they have a interesting way of saying hello. Maybe if you could just set up, uh, set up the story for us. Well, the, the story was originally based on the, the idea of the very old English poem of Sir, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, which involves a, the, the Green Knight comes to King Arthur's court and wants to play a game with one of the knights. The, the knight will get first whack to cut his head off, and then after that it's his turn. So now, and the Green Knight picks up his head, leaves, and then Gowan has to go and for the replay later. And Gowan, of course, is this heroic character. He's the one who's terrifically virtuous, a paragon of chivalry, and so forth. And I wanted to have a character who was a good guy, but you know, distinctly not the lead knight. So, I, so, so what we have is the character who finds out that what they, the aliens really want to do is to do a sort of space jousting where they go into opposing orbits around the planet, and every time they pass, one of the ships fires something at the other one, with nothing but honor, of course, keep, keeping them from being unreasonable about what they use. And so they do this, they, they you know, get severely shaken up, and they come out of it covered with glory. And then they find that glory wasn't actually what they went there for, they went there to trade, and this gets in the way of the trading. And this, of course, means that our translator has to go back and try and solve the problem, which... Right, yeah, it's a, be careful what you wish for, almost, in a way. Um, and, we, and we won't say too much about it, because it is a fun, I don't want to say twist, but, you know, plot development. Um, where did the idea come from to have a xenolinguist? Um, was that something that um, you built around, or was that something that you had this idea, and that's, that was the, the obvious thing to have uh, as the as protagonist? Well, that developed very early in the story. That I mean, I mean, we have a culture that's sufficiently alien that um, everyone's surprised by the fact they've got this custom of celebrating the summer solstice by um, taking pot shots at each other's spaceships. And if, if the culture is that alien and you can communicate with them at all, somebody on one side or the other is going to have to do a lot of learning languages pretty quickly. And given that the humans are the ones who are arriving the scene, it seemed that it might make more sense to have them ready to do this. I mean, this has the added advantage, of course, from the point of view of writing the story, that the, we, it, it can always be the human mangling of the language that gets shown, which gives, gives a lot more room for humor without making it, making it sound as if the aliens are somehow being put down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should mention there is a, um, I wouldn't call this a humor, st- hum- piece of humor, but it is a, it's got a lot of good, um, I guess it does have humor in it, right? You know, it, in, that arises naturally from the, uh, from the action that I thought was, uh, that drew me to it. Um, well, uh, anything else specifically that, about writing the story or anything? I did want to talk to you about this came out in Compelling Science Fiction, uh, issue one. And uh, I just wanted to talk about, uh, you know, I, I've been asking people um, where these stories originally appeared and, and sort of uh, trying to put a spotlight on some of these uh, markets that we found. And I really like compelling science fiction. I wondered how you became part of that uh, first inaugural issue. Well, just a matter of keeping an eye out for markets and that this one was open and it looked as if the story might fit. You know, it, it did seem as if the editor was looking for sort of somewhat classic science fiction, and this cer- certainly was the way I'd intended it to be. So 
sent it off and it worked. Yeah. So uh, so keep your eye out and read the guidelines is uh, what you're saying. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good advice. And also, I think a, a magazine is just starting up probably is likely to be a little shorter of stories than one that's been there for a long time and everyone knows about. So I think it's probably a good idea to keep an eye out for the new ones because you know, they may be happy to get right. the Right, and then when they, if they become wildly successful, you can say I was there at the beginning, you know, so. Well, is uh, Robert, is there anything else about the story you think readers should uh, know or something else you want to let them know about to entice them to uh, to go out and buy many multiple copies of Year's Best so they can read The Art of Failure? Well, I mean, apart from the fact that it was great fun to write, I was able to get an interesting set of characters that, and work with them just because the situation was so bizarre. All right, well, let's uh, let's turn to uh, Jay Werkheiser's story, uh, One Giant Leap. Um, and this is, um, you know, I think I want to say that we've had a story set on Venus in every one of these year's bests. Um, I don't know what that says about the short fiction market or about me as an editor, but I am glad to have this one in. Um, this is uh, called One Giant Leap, and uh, Jay, why don't you just set it up for us and let us know what's what's happening in the story. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, my, my basic idea was I wanted to see if I can put a person on Venus um, using you know, modern technology or at least a reasonable extrapolation of it. And uh, the original idea was make it a publicity stunt. But I quickly realized that no one in the right mind would try that kind of stunt, so I figured, what if it's an accident? Um, so, yeah, basically the, the lead character falls overboard from a floating um, station and has to try to figure out if he's going to be able to survive the trip down to the surface. And he's got some sort of um, training in a way that would that would help with that, in that he's a um, he's a scuba diver. Is that correct? Yeah. In, in researching, like the um, you know, obviously the pressure was going to be a big issue to deal with on Venus. Um, I realized uh, I realized quickly that um, deep sea divers deal with high pressure, so I you know looked at what you know what regimes they were diving under, and to find ways to bridge the gap pressure wise. So a character, a deep sea diver, would be a natural fit for that. And so this is a, an example of getting something from research, not from, you're not, a, you're not a, a diver yourself. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not either, but to me, it, it felt very real. So, um, kudos on that. Um, and, uh, and then there's something else, of course, um, going on in the story. And this is one thing that drew it to me. It, drew me to it, as it were. Um, and that's um, that Kent is the main character, and his uh, father is the commander of this floating habitat, and um, they have a somewhat contentious relationship. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, mainly I was looking for a, um, a human interaction that would, um, that would uh, mesh with the, the whole psychological descent into darkness and death and pressure and all that. And I figured a uh, family relationship would, you know, would certainly be good for that. Um, and people sometimes ask me, you know, is this based on real life? No, not, not at all. I, I have a really good relationship with my father. So, again, this is kind of one of those things where it's just based on other observations rather than personal. Right. Well, I wonder, the thing that I liked is that is it could be, so What ha what's happening is Kent's falling through Venus. He's trying to... Um, stay alive as long as he can, and he's also communicating with his uh, dad on the on the floating <clears throat> base, if you will. And um, we're sort of cutting between the two, and I think that's something that could have been very that could have how shall I put this failed miserably. It could have you could have undercut the tension in both, um, but you didn't. It, it worked out really well where they actually to me, played on each other and sort of heightened the tension in both. And I wonder how hard was that to get that balance um, between, you know, you want to cut between the two actions, you want them to, to build on each other. Um, I just wonder about how getting that right, getting get that mix right worked. Um, well, actually, it kind of just fell together. I, I got really lucky on this one, honestly. Um, <laughs> as I was writing it, just the characters pretty much told me what to do. Um, the uh, 
I realize that I, I know there's contentious family relationships out there, but they're almost always based on love in the background. Maybe they don't want to show it, you know, and that kind of thing. So I tried to use that to, you know, to, to create the interpersonal tension that, you know, these people love each other, care about each other, but they're too macho to say so until mm-hmm. it comes down to really no choice. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, I thought it uh, really worked well. Um, anything else, any other like little, um, I don't know, funky things that came up in the writing or in the research that you, uh, you know, ha- had this, uh, that you wanted to share with us at all or, or no? Um, well, um, mainly I, I realized, I guess, um, everyone's trying to put people on Mars. So I wanted to do a, a different challenge than someone on Venus. Um, the, the biggest issue I found was obviously the pressure, the temperature I figured for a short term heat shielding would be fine. Um, but yeah, the pressure was a real issue. The deepest dives I found had gone to 60 atmospheres under controlled situations. So, you know, to get to the surface of Venus, I needed a big, you know, jump in pressure from there. So for me, it was all about researching the pressure. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly feels, like I said, very, very real. And, um, like, you know what you're talking about. Um, and this appeared in kind of a surprising place for this kind of story. Um, do you want to, it was in Strange Horizons. Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that at all? I mean, this is sort of, I think, I think there was um, another editor I know said something about like he, he read a great analog story in Strange Horizons. And I'm pretty sure he, this was the story he was talking about. I, I sent it off to analog originally because you know, clearly it's an analog style story. And um, Trevor um, tells me he agonized over this for way longer than he, you know, he should have in, in his words. Um, <laughs> But um, uh, but ultimately, he um, had just recently bought a story that was similar in tone and theme, and he couldn't justify publishing two so close together. And mm-hmm. so he sent it back to me saying, try it elsewhere. If you don't sell it in a year or so, send it back to me and I'll take it. And Strange Horizons took it. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Jay, I guess... Uh... That is what we've got. So, yeah, this one's called One Giant Leap Again and um, uh, originally appeared in Strange Horizons, but now is, of course, in Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction, Volume 3. Um, let me uh, go ahead and we'll talk to our, uh, last but not least, final guest, uh, Eric Del Carlo, about his story, Unlinkage. Um, and this one's got a really cool... Um, this one's this is one of the military ones I would say, and it uh, although that takes place about half after uh, it's retired military, but um, deals with a very interesting super soldier program. Um, and Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit about that? Oh sure. Uh, well, Unlinkage um, is the story of, as you said, a retired. Uh, military person uh it's a woman who has settled into a very comfortable civilian domestic life um she's got things very good she has a young daughter that she loves you know life is life is just paradise these are her halcyon days and she's put behind her military term or military term of service um it's a world where there isn't war per se but there's a consistent uh terrorist presence all over the globe so there's really there's no hiding from it but she's done her time and her time was uh um kind of an interesting thing where she was pulled from the ranks and put into a uh special program where uh a group of soldiers were uh linked uh mentally with a specific other soldier, and the other soldier was a brute, and they were these gigantic Conan-like soldiers with reduced mental capacity but were um, augmented with physical abilities. Um, And the idea was that they needed to put together a group that could um, function without any of the higher technologies they were able to use um, just Simple, I think I refer to them as clickety-clack guns. You know, there's no smart technology in in, uh, 
in their weaponry, and they sent this they send this group in to knock out a terrorist cell that is uh, has come up with its own weapon that's able to black out um, areas of the world and 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 do harm that way. So there's sort of this uh, old school guerrilla um, unit, and she was a part of this, and and she was mentally linked with uh, with her brute. And uh, they go in and they perform the mission, and uh, the casualties are massive, and her brute dies, and the the link that she's had with him is severed. And she's and like I said, she's moved on, and and her life is great now. And then out of the blue, the link comes back alive, and she starts to experience uh, the physical sensations that she had when she was linked with her brute in the field, and suddenly she's able to feel these uh, traumatic blows to her body. It is an actual physical pain, but it's translated to her mind as, uh, oh, oh, my brute's in trouble, but, but her brute is dead. How can this possibly be, be happening to her? So the, so the idea is that is she losing her mind or has uh, the link in her head somehow come back to life and is hooking up to something else? So, so it's, it's as much a mystery uh, story as, as anything else. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, probably one of the things that, um, aside from the really interesting um, central concept of this this brute and the handler, which I want to talk about just a little bit more, too, but um, that drew me to, I think probably anyone who's read these three um, years bests realize that I really like mystery stories. Um, I, I kind of got into crime fiction and mystery fiction as much as I did into science fiction and horror when I was, you know, younger. And so I like to slip the... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I like to slip, you know, some uh, mystery stories with that in there every time. So um, I think, yeah, this that kind of um, structure was one of the things I liked about it. Um, but um, we don't want to talk about that too much again because we don't want to give things away. But um, I do want to talk about um, this. So the way that Edda Pryor, that's the, the woman, uh, how how all these handlers can... I don't want to say control, I guess controller, who are linked to their brutes is through this uh, stuff called Biomoss. And, and that was a really cool, um, you could have just hand-waved it. And you kind of did, but I think you gave us enough that it was such a cool little idea of, of what this stuff was or what they think it might have been. And maybe you could talk about that. Oh, sure. Uh, the, the term just came to me out of the blue. Actually, the whole story came to me out of the blue. I did something almost unthinkable with this thing. I actually wrote an outline to it. Because it came to me uh, just in in complete form. Actually, I'm looking at it right now. I've got it all written down in my scrolling uh, hand here, and it's it's every scene from the story right here. And I just I wrote it in an afternoon. I mean, not the story, but the outline and all you know. Wow. And I've got biomass. It says right there. But uh, in in the first pass of the story, the idea was. Uh, oh, I'll just call it biomoss and just kind of uh, slough it off, and I won't go into any of the scientific detail of it, because what do I know? I'll just have the link. <laughs> you know, it'll just be the link between it. It's not so much that the handler controls the brood. It's more that they advise in a mm-hmm. strategic fashion. They're, they, they, the brutes don't have the higher functions anymore, uh, but, but the handlers do, of course. So they can sort of see through their eyes and say, okay, do this and do that. You know, use your tremendous physical abilities in this intelligent fashion. But when when I sent this thing to Analog, and I just did it out of the blue, I thought, oh, I'll never sell a story to Analog. I don't write hard science fiction. Come on, this is this is a you know pie in the sky stuff. And then I got the I got the email back from Trevor there, and he was like, this is a really good story, but we don't do. Um, there's no way I can pass uh, a psychic link off to my reader, so you're going to have to come up with some explanation. And I was like, okay, I like a challenge. So I, uh, it already had biomass in the term, so I thought, well, let me look into botanicals. And, of course, there are the like the telegraph vines and other plants who can actually communicate across vast distances. And I thought, well, let's just, let's just take that and take it to a ridiculous extreme that it'll still sound vaguely scientific like I know what I'm talking about. So I was able to put together enough terminology to make Trevor happy. So that, yeah. that's what it ended up being. 
Yeah, well, I think it worked out. And like I said, that was an interesting idea of um, that this was. And I think also you um, did it, use that great technique of the characters don't really know <clears throat> either. So, you know, it's just sort of their speculation of um, what, because this, this is all proprietary, top secret military um, stuff. So it makes sense that they don't. Yeah. Staples in my writing. My One of my things is. Uh... It's not that I don't care how the FTL drive works. It's that my characters don't. So this is this is one of those lucky ones that just come in a in a in a flash, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was it was just a complete burst. I mean, usually I'll I'll you know come up with a basic idea, and more importantly, I'll come up with a character that uh, can explore the idea. Uh, but this just the whole thing was just right there. I mean, every plot point just worked out perfectly. I mean, from the outline that I wrote here, all I did was invert uh, two of the scenes. I just, I flipped them for, it was a better continuity, but everything else is, it, it's all right here. Look, look, underground fight ring, uh, you know, the, I got the whole thing going on. <laughs> That's always a pleasant surprise, yeah, and uh, it was a pleasant surprise to find it in analog, and um, just really glad to have it, and thanks for being on. Um, so I'm going to let you guys let you guys uh, ring off here. I'm going to talk about some of the other stories, but I'll just uh, talk into the microphone because um, I know you guys got to get on with your day. But uh, we appreciate you being on. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, okay. Take care. Bye. All right, folks. That was Michael Izell, Casey Izell, Robert Dawson, Eric Del Carlo, and Jay Werkheiser uh, talking about their stories in the year's best military and adventure science fiction volume three. I uh, was happy to have them on. Of course, would have liked to have had all of the contributors on uh, to Year's Best, but of course, time would not allow that. So I just wanted to talk about some of the uh, other stories in the book um, just briefly to give you guys a taste of uh, what you're going to find between the cover here. We've got a David Drake story called Cadet Cruise. This one uh, is set in his Royal Cinnabar uh, Navy world, and it uh, is... Uh, Daniel Leary as a young cadet, and I think uh, readers of that series will uh, really enjoy this story, but of course, if you're a newcomer, uh, you will like this one quite a bit as well. I think it works just fine as a standalone. <clears throat> After that, we've got uh, Tethers by uh, William Ledbetter. Uh, Bill has been on the podcast a few times. He runs the uh, Jim Bay Memorial Short Story Contest. Um, and he is actually now Nebula winner, William Ledbetter. He won for a short story called The Long Fall-Up, which appeared in Fantasy and Science Fiction. Uh, his story in the year's best military and adventure science fiction is Tethers, which originally appeared on Bane.com, and it is about a, it's a hard science fiction story about an accident in Earth orbit, and it's uh, sort of an edge-of-your-seat, uh, will-they-survive type of thing, and I think you guys will really like it. Uh, we've also got a story by Adam Roberts called Between 9 and 11. This one is a really cool, uh, military science fiction story, uh, fighting a very alien species of aliens and, uh, a very unique weapon that the aliens employ. And, uh, I won't say more than that, but I think everyone will like that one. Next we have Cephine and the Leviathan by Jack Shouten. This one appeared... Uh, I believe this one, let me look, I think this was a Clark's World story. Uh, yes, that is a Clark's World story. And uh, really cool um, colony ship uh, crash lands on this planet and encounters an in alien intelligence. And uh, there's a lot of twists and turns to this one. Um, and to say too much about it, uh, I will spoil it. But um, it's a young girl and her brother are central to the story. Her brother uh, is trying to uh, find a way off the planet, and uh, we see how that works out. Uh, then there is a great piece of humor writing we got in this one. This is called If I Could Give This Time Machine Zero Stars, I Would by James Wesley Rogers. This one was in Alex Schwartzman's uh, Unidentified Funny Objects uh, anthologies that come out every year. Uh, I believe this was UFO 5. And uh, this one's written in the style of a series of reviews for a time machine. And obviously, as you can hear from the title, someone is not too pleased with it. Uh, then we've got Wise Child by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This one is set in, of course, their Leaden universe. 
and uh, concerns a artificial intelligence on board a ship and um, some of the ethics surrounding that uh, that sort of relationship. And then we've got uh, Star Home, which is a Michael Z. Williamson story. Mike had a story in the first year's best that we did back way back when and uh, three years ago. And this one is also like that one is um, set in his Freehold universe. So if uh, readers are familiar with that, um, I think they'll enjoy this one. And again, this one I think does stand alone just fine. It's a uh, sort of military in a way. Uh, it's got that feel to it anyways. Um, and of course, if you're familiar with Freehold, uh, you know, uh, the UN back on Earth versus the uh, the libertarian uh, Freehold Society. Uh, a lot of conflict there. Uh, then we have The Last Tank Commander by Alan Stroud. This is about a, uh, again, a colony ship. This is a military um, story. They find themselves in a hostile environment, and um, this gentleman, the main character, is The Last Tank Commander, and uh, he has experience with tanks back on Earth they did not think they would need. He's now an old man, and he's got to sort of train these raw recruits on the fly as they are battling this alien menace. Uh, then we've got The Immortals Anchorage by David Adams. This one is a military uh, sort of mercenary group that uh, is going to salvage some, uh, what they think, some tech off this dead ship out in space, but they find a very nasty surprise on board, and I won't say more than that. And then finally, we've got a biopunk story with a noir twist from Paul Filippo, and this one is called Backup Man, and that one closes out the year's best military and adventure science fiction, Volume 3. And uh, like I said, a lot of great stories in here. I think I'm biased, of course. But um, we want to hear from you which story you think is the best. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast or been following this along, you know that we do a an award based on the year's best military and adventure science fiction. And it is the year's best military and adventure science fiction reader's choice award. And uh, the table of contents from the book is going to be the ballot. And uh, you can go online to www.bain.com slash year's best award and vote for your favorite story from the anthology. And the winner will uh, receive a plaque and a $500 cash prize. So this is a great way to um, kind of put on your editor hat and uh, let us know which story you like the best and uh, reward your favorite author from the book. And uh, so once again, go to uh, bain.com slash year's best award and vote. And uh, we want to hear from you guys. So really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great to be here with you today. This is David Afshirod, and we've been talking about the year's best military and adventure science fiction, Volume 3, which is out now in paperback. Thanks so much, guys. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corville's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 4 Terrigan 
in jump. They were in jump en route to Biradine, and the pilot had given co-pilot Tolly Jones leave to grab a snack and stretch his legs. There was mite in the galley, so he added hot water and stirred up a mugful. Unlike some spacers, it wasn't his drink and or food of preference, but it had its uses as a quick pick-me-up, which it happened he needed. The pilot was pushing them, just a little, nothing bone and blood couldn't put up with, stipulating that bone and blood was what you'd call in form. Which he wasn't, quite. He swallowed the mite as fast as he could, put the mug in the washer, and exited the galley, turning left to take a little walking tour of Terrigan. She was a tidy ship, augmented in interesting ways, which pilot Tokel had already drilled him on. The pilot wouldn't suffer one bit of damage if he did something stupid that breached the hull, but he'd be a dead man. And it was courteous of her to notice his disability in that regard and take steps first off to be sure he was safe on the ship. His tour ended, as it had on his three other walkabouts at the alcove that held the auto dock. He paused at the side of the single unit, palm flat against the opaque hood, and frowned at the status board. Has, his former partner in port security, Hasenful Norfellium, had taken a couple hits for him, which normally would have made as much difference to her as getting slugged with a marshmallow. She was that big and that tough. Too bad for her that the particular sort of marshmallows she'd caught had come out of the gun of one of his late directors, and they'd been poisoned. It was a particularly nasty poison the directors employed, which he knew from personal experience. But him and the pilot had gotten Haz into the dock plenty quick. He'd expected her to be up and around by now. The good news was that the dock had consistently reported that she was on the mend. In fact, the end of treatment display was finally lit up this time. He leaned close to have a look. Fourteen hours till the hood came up. He patted the top of the dock softly, as if Haz might feel his hand and take some comfort from knowing he had her back. Just like old times. He patted the dock once more and left the alcove, heading for the bridge. How fares the explorer? the pilot asked from her station. She was a sight for tired eyes, was pilot Tokel. Smooth and personable, and specifically non-threatening. The curve of her gleaming white chassis suggesting something feminine. The smallness of it hinting at vulnerability. She moved herself about the ship by floating a few inches above the deck plates, Nothing so crass or noisy as wheels or skis. He hadn't worked out if her motivating force was anti-grav, magnetics, or a tightly focused and utterly silent air pad. It seemed rude to ask. It was Tolly's opinion, as an expert in the field, that there wasn't the least need for pilot Tokel to sit station. Pilot Tokel had direct access to all ship's systems right there inside her pretty little head, or he was a three-nosed and dulcin frog. She's got a healed-by date, he said in answer to his pilot's question. Fourteen hours from now, this bridge is going to be full up with big, stubborn woman who'll be wanting to talk to her captain, Stat. I shall be very glad to see her, and in such condition, Pilot Tokel said composedly. In the meantime, I wonder, Pilot, if you will answer some questions for me. Do my best, he said, 
like his stomach hadn't kind of cramped up hearing that. Understand that I don't know the answers to all the questions. Oh yes, I do understand that, she said. Before we begin, let me request that you not lie to me. If you do not wish to answer a question, simply refrain from doing so. All right, pilot, he said, and slipped into his chair. I'm curious myself, though. The, my contact who approached me about this project, he has my credentials. Indeed, your credentials are impressive, she said, and you are undeniably resourceful. Our mutual contact was quite clear that you are a mentor of great talent. The most talented in your field, he said. To be fair, the field isn't that big, the complex logic laws being what they are. That the pilot was herself a violation of the complex logic laws went without saying. His being hired as co-pilot was to cover for her. She was a prototype, so the script went, some kind of a cyber-mech pilot, sophisticated but stopping short of illegal. Which was why she sat station. He was along for the ride, to observe, to make notes, and to abort her if something went wrong. However, his contract had two sections to it, and the second part engaged his services in evaluating and, if possible, socializing a newly realized AI, who had come to awareness under unspecified but difficult circumstances, unmentored. He didn't have anything against sitting co-pilot, but he might not have taken the contract just to give pilot Tokol cover, seeing that his own blanket had lately developed a considerable number of holes. The second part of the contract, though, that had grabbed his attention and it hadn't let go. Never mind that the complex logic laws made Pilot Tokel and all her kind out to be rogue devices bent on destroying human life. If encountered, according to the CLL, an AI was to be confined, deactivated, or destroyed, nobody was to take it into their heads to build one for any reason whatsoever, under pain of death. It hadn't always been that way. Truth said, it wasn't that way even now. AIs got born, not as a frequent thing, but often enough that mentors were needed. They worked the underside, but not one mentor Talid ever met or heard of had minded that. Pilot Tokol turned toward him the flat screen at the apex of her slender core column showing the shadow of a face, smiling, a shadow smile. The field may be small, but that does not negate the fact of your mastery, Tali. Our contact praised you in the highest terms. I have no questions there. Tali took a breath. Where do you have questions then? he asked her, but he already knew. There was a small pause, as if Pilot Tokol needed a moment to gather her thoughts. Tolly sighed gently. A sigh, Pilot Tolly. I was thinking I'd like to meet the mentor who had the teaching of you. I could learn a thing or two. He paused and added, just to be clear, no disrespect, Pilot. Certainly not. If you think such a meeting would be of use, I will ask my mentor if he will see you when this mission is done. I'd like that. Thanks. You are very welcome. And now, I fear, my questions. What are you, Tolens Barrick Jones? That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Koki Daniel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jukowitz. And a special spot at the front end of the human caterpillar, plus bottle rockets of glee, revelry, and golden dispensations of lauds and plaudits. To David F. Sherrod, Casey Ezell, Eric Del Carlo, Jay Werkheiser, Robert Dawson, and Michael Ezell, editor and writers of The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF Volume 3. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.